church. It's good to be back with you worshiping uh, together this weekend. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, that's where we're going to be here in just a minute. Um, but we have, we've been on this journey the last couple of weeks looking at what does the Bible mean uh, by rest? When, when, the, when we, the Bible talks about rest, what does it mean? We saw two weeks ago that God himself took a rest. After, after he created everything that we see, our entire world, our entire universe, God rested. What we saw in that is that what rest truly is, it's first a ceasing from work, but then it's a rest of being present. There are two words that were used in the Hebrew. I won't quiz you on them because I'm sure you all remember them. But we have to, we have to Shabbat, what the, what the Bible says, Shabbat. We have to cease from work before we can nuach, which is the word that means to, to, to be present with God and with other people. And so we saw that that's, that's what it means to find rest. And then Exodus 20, we get to this command to the Israelites in which God says, rest on the seventh day of the week. And he commands that. And we saw in that story, in the, in the command and the story surrounding it, that true rest finds its purpose in knowing God, trusting God, and being with God. And these are the principles of the Sabbath. These are the principles of what it means to rest that we see in the Scriptures. And so today, what I want to try to do is just put a bow on everything that we've talked about. Everything's been building to this point where we flash all the way forward to the New Testament. And we start looking at how does Jesus engage with the Sabbath? How does he engage with rest? And how, how, uh, how, how different was it from the world around it and from the world around him? And so let me read actually Matthew 12, 1 through 8. I want to read the whole scripture and then uh, I'll pray. And then we'll come back in and study uh, the text after, okay? Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Uh, the word of the Lord says this. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the disciples saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Haven't you read what David did? When he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and how they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for them or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Haven't you read in the law that the, on the Sabbath days that the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath yet are innocent? I'll tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, we pray that today uh, you would teach us to know you. And God, that, that, that from this text, first and foremost, comes your character and your nature. But God, also that you would be with us. God, as we talk about this and challenge each other, God, to do this, give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, now, I have, I have uh, been a parent now for nine years. And I know that doesn't even come close to some of you. Um, and some of you aren't parents, and you're going to go, great, another parenting example. I'm sorry. Um, but I think we all, we all, can, we all can acknowledge this. Uh, there's two types of parents in the world. I've discovered this after many years of faithful research. And you can tell these two types of parents when you're on a playground and there's somebody swinging, especially big kids, Okay. This is when the two types of parents become very, very clear. Because there's one type of parent that when their kid is getting near the playground where the swings are happening. You with me? They're walking near. 
The one type of parent yells, stop. Hey, son, you know we don't walk behind swings. We've talked about that. You could get hurt. Go around them. Don't walk behind the swings. That's one type of parent. The other type of parent says this. You going to get hit? (laughs) Now, that's all they say. Now, I find myself... I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat ashamed to say it. I'm the first parent, but man, I want to be the second one, right? <laughs> go, Hey, I told you, I told you, get over, let's go to the hospital. Let's go. I got, that's the parent I want to be. I want, I want to be there. But, but listen, here's the point. Here's the point. Uh, is there anything wrong with walking across the play, playground while people are swinging? No, the danger is when you get smoked by the swing. That's where the problem is. That's where the danger is. The danger is not in the walking, but in the getting smoked. So what we do is we put an extra rule, right? We don't just say, don't get hit by the swings. What do we do? We say, don't walk behind the swings. We add an extra rule that protects them from making the mistake that's going to lead to danger. We do that with a bunch of things in parenting, but also in life. And there can be great wisdom in that. But then it gets out of hand because it keeps going from there. Because you tell them to walk around, but but they don't know how far to walk around. You know, they stop and they go, oh, they take one step over and then they walk and then they still get smoked, right? So we create another rule. You know what? There's Pete, there's big kids on the swings. Y'all just stay on the opposite side. Stay over there at the slides. Just, just stay on that side of the playground. That's what we do. Well, then, then, but the kids just, they want to walk, don't they? They want to walk by the swings. I don't know what it draws on there. So then you go, okay, well, anytime we pull up to the playground, we're not going to, if there's kids, if there's big kids on the swings, we're not going to be there. We can't. There's too, too much temptation. We can't do it. And then it becomes, we're not going to go to the playground at all because it's too dangerous. And we just stay home. Or we put up our own slide. Right? This is, the, this is what we do. We continue to build these rules, 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 rules to protect us from the one thing that was dangerous to the point that we actually lose sight of the joy what the original thing brought us. You see, this is what was happening with the Sabbath. This is actually what was going on. This is what has started to take place with the Sabbath. That we saw last week, there was such an emphasis placed. Yes, there were there were ten commands that God gave, but this particular command, God focused, seemed to so focus so much on that I believe Israel seemed to live in fear of breaking it. So if you're taking notes, I've only got two points for you today. Good night. That deserves like a at least a hug at the door or something. Come on. Like two points. That's it. Uh, or a gift card, whatever. Um, but number one is this, people feared the Sabbath. This is, I don't mean feared in a good way. Like it was, people literally were beginning to live in fear that they were going to make a mistake on the Sabbath. And out of all the commands, it was this one, that what they began to do was this strange parenting thing. They began to, they ended up building all these other rules and all these other guidelines around the Sabbath law that God had given them to protect them from making the mistake of breaking the law. And yes, God won't have time to go through all those, but there are several do's and don'ts that God gives about the Sabbath just to kind of build it out a little bit. But what happens is then the Israelite teachers, they take those do's and don'ts and those extra laws that God gives, and man, they have a field day with them. And so over several generations, more and more guidelines come to hedge people away from the Sabbath. I'm going to give you an example, just so you don't think I'm crazy. Exodus 35.3, the Lord said this, do not light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath day. Do not light a fire in your homes on the Sabbath day. So we don't have 
I won't do like an open mic thing, but like, what do you think the point of that is? Like, why did God say that? If the Sabbath is about not working, why would God say, don't light a fire in your home? To me, maybe I'm crazy, but I don't know if you've lit a fire lately. Uh, You don't just light it. You have to first build it. And to build it, you have to have this stuff called firewood. Right? And you don't go to the Dollar General and get it out of the little rack that somebody's got set up on the side there. Like you had to cut it yourself with an axe. And and so that, that was work. But then even to keep the fire going, even in, especially with it being inside your home, it was going to take a lot of effort. So over time, the Jews took laws like this. It's Exodus 3, 5, 35, 3 that God says, do not light a fire in your homes. And it got it, all these laws get expanded into a list of 39 activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And you're going to have to Google that for yourself later. But then what happens is over time, technology advances. And now we don't have to build a fire in our home to have light. What do we have? A, f- a flashlight and then... Electricity, we have, we have it like wired into our house, right? And so this, this is what happens. What do we do with electricity now? Because what we know is that an electrical signal looks a lot like a spark in the big scheme of things. And so what happened to continue to develop over time, and now most uh, practicing Jews, when they're, when they're practicing the Sabbath, don't even flip a light switch on because it's lighting a spark in the home. Something as convenient as elevators, even in some of the booming uh, housing districts in Jerusalem today where there's apartments and there's multi-level uh, condos and things like that, the elevators have what is referred to as Sabbath mode. That whenever the Sabbath begins, you no longer get to push a button because that sends a spark to a motor. Now the, the elevator just stops on every floor. Every, and you just pray it ain't full when it gets to you. And so that's how it works, right? Because it's it would be lighting a spark. So the problem with this is that piling on is the, all this piling on that we've done over time with the, 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 the Israelites have done with the Sabbath law is that the original law gets totally lost. The joy of the original law is totally lost in all the extras that we've built around it. You forget where all this started. And I know there wasn't electricity. There weren't elevators 2,000 years ago, but this process had already started by Jesus' day, and that's why he's being given a hard time when he plucks some heads off of the wheat. Jesus and his disciples probably didn't do a ton of traveling on the Sabbath, but clearly they were walking somewhere here, and they find themselves to be hungry. And what do we do when we find ourselves hungry? We get a snack. And Jesus did what you and I would do. They go to the cupboard, and they pluck some grains, heads of grain, and they chew on them a little bit. That's what we do, right? No, that's the, okay. We don't do that, but we would, we would grab, uh, my favorite is uh, Nutty Bars. Familiar with that? We keep them in the volunteer hub just for me. Um, I don't know what your favorite snack is. I bought some sweet tarts yesterday. Old school, hard kind, not chewy. Don't be weird. Get the real ones. But we find a snack. When we're hungry, we find a snack. And for Jesus and his disciples, they're walking somewhere. They find themselves hungry. So they do what you and I would do is they pluck some grain for a snack. But in so doing, Jesus gets absolutely lit up. Because Jesus was a rabbi and rabbis were supposed to be schooled in biblical knowledge and they were supposed to know the practices of the Sabbath. How could this this rabbi who was growing in popularity, how could he have slipped up like this? And the naysayers come and light him up. Now, if you and I were to look at it, 
Was the plucking of the grain heads a ridiculously heavy labor on the Sabbath? No. Pretty easy. But the expectations of the people were no harvesting on the Sabbath. And we can certainly see a guy going out with a big blade and chopping down wheat and then going and doing all the stuff that he does to separate everything that has to happen and getting the wheat prepared for all this. That would have certainly been work. That would have been obviously a no-no. But Jesus makes the argument here that there was nothing wrong with what he and his disciples did. And he uses two examples from the Scriptures. First is David, and then he, does, he, he talks about the priests. Look at these with me. This is verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him or for those who eat, who uh, were with him to eat, but only for the priests. This is a, this is a wild reference uh, today. And if you're not familiar with first Samuel, go read that sucker because there's some cool stories in first Samuel. Some of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, but David who eventually becomes king is not king right now in this story that he's talking about. But he's already been anointed as king. Everybody knows David's, a lot of people already know David's going to be the next king. And the current king, who is Saul, gets really jealous of that. David has made his way up to kind of be a military leader under King Saul. But Saul is at this point trying to seek out David and kill him to do away with the competition, to protect his throne. But as David and his men are being pursued by Saul, they travel near the tabernacle on the Sabbath. And his men are hungry. So what do we do when we're hungry? We find a snack. But it's Sabbath. Nobody's going to cook for us. So they go into the tabernacle, talk to the priests, and they ask the priests for something to eat. Now, at this point, all the priests have to offer is the showbread, which are 12 loaves of bread that are baked before the Sabbath begins, and they're placed uh, before uh, the altar of God, and they're placed there as an offering to the Lord. But they're also there... So the priests have something to eat on the Sabbath because otherwise they're going to get hungry. And so that was there. And so David says, give me some of that. And the priests argue with him for a little bit. But David makes the argument because I'm not not even part of this culture, but I can see that this was probably not a popular decision. It took some convincing. This This bread was only for the priests. And that was clear in the practice of the people. But David makes the argument in 1 Samuel that the most important thing in the moment was feeding these great warriors of Israel. They were crucial in protection of God's people and honestly protecting God's next anointed king, who was David. So Jesus is using this story to show them that the circumstances at hand make it okay for what they did. We can't lose sight of the context here. What Jesus is com- Who's Jesus comparing himself to? David. Who's he comparing his disciples to? The great warriors of Israel. And he's comparing his mission to David's mission. This is a step out. This is, if the, the Pharisees are going, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Are you are you serious right now? Like they're they're questioning that. They wouldn't have fallen on ears that day. Ears to hear. But then he gives another example. Because Jesus, if he's if Jesus is one thing, when he senses there's a problem, he'll step on in it one more time. And he actually steps in about three times this time. But here's the second step. He says in verse five, Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath? Yet are innocent. What does he mean that they violate the Sabbath? Man, the Sabbath day was not a rest for the, the priests. They were, in the, they were in the temple. They were making certain sacrifices. They were getting everything ready. There was a lot of ceremonial work that went into the Sabbath. The priests didn't get to rest, but yet they weren't under scrutiny because 
They were doing what had to be done to keep up the worship of God. And if the first example was difficult for these religious leaders to hear that Jesus was comparing himself to David, here it was certainly because he's comparing he and his disciples to the work of the priests in the temple. Now, flag on the play, get out the yellow flag, throw it. This This is a step out. This is not going to go over well. But in typical Jesus fashion, he don't stop there. He goes, oh, okay. And he takes one more step. Verses 6 and 7. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus just said, and we don't know if he pointed to himself. I wish we had that. You know what I mean? He says that something greater than the temple is here. Like he's, he's talking about himself here. Jesus is saying, listen, and again, like I know I made a little joke about it, but think about that. I am greater than the temple. <laughs> this is a crazy statement that Jesus is making, but the temple, because the temple was a physical representation of a spiritual reality that God lived among his people. That's what the temple was. It represented the presence of God in Israel. But now God has not come to meet man in a temple behind a ceremonial curtain. He's come in the form of a man, no longer veiled behind curtain, but in flesh, no longer just for the priests, but for everybody who wants to go to the market and look eyes on him. He's walking around in the streets. And Jesus says, if you had any clue what you were talking about, you'd shut up about them grains, them heads of grain. (laughs) because you don't know who you're talking to. I read this this week in an article. I just thought it was worded well. David is, in, is talking about this conversation. David was the one who designed the temple. And it's his son who built it, and it's the priests who worked in it. And then Jesus comes and says, and I am the reality to which the temple was pointing. Because we believe Jesus was who he said he was, these arguments make sense to us. We're like, yes, Jesus and David, yes, Jesus and the priests, we're on board. But keep in mind that these religious leaders would have been watching Jesus, waiting for him to slip up. And here they finally got an opportunity to rip him and just, just get on him in this moment. But man, it's, it's not, Jesus' biggest statement is not an argument about I'm kind of like David or I'm kind of like the priest or even I'm greater than the temple. He says in verse 8, he compares himself to God. Listen to this. Matthew 12, 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man was already a term Jesus was using for himself. If you don't know where that comes from, it's from Daniel 7. It's a forward-looking prophetic image in which Daniel sees a cloud-riding Son of Man figure, God-like, man-like figure, riding clouds coming on the scene of, of earth. And it was believed for generations after Daniel prophesied this, it was believed that this would be God's Messiah. It was the Son of Man would be the rescuer that would one day restore Israel. And it was a popular image that the religious leaders would have known and they would have talked about it, but they would have hated that Jesus used it for himself. But when Jesus, he said Son of Man, which would have frustrated him a little bit, but then he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we could go, that could be three weeks worth of sermons in itself, but I want to keep it simple today. What did Jesus mean by Lord of the Sabbath? The word he uses, Lord, it's a Greek word that has two meanings. It either means a master or the one in charge, 
or it's a reference to the name of God. It's two options. If you remember last week, I referenced the word Lord in the Old Testament. When it's in all caps in our translation, that's a completely different word. That's, that's, that's what we... That's it's a completely different word than when we see it in lowercase letters. In the Old Testament, that's the, the personal name of God, and then the lowercase version is master or boss. But in the New Testament, there's no distinction between those two, and so we only have one word to convey both a master and our God. So either Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I'm the one in charge, so back off, or he's saying, I'm God, therefore I created the Sabbath, so back off. The takeaway, the application of the message, the same. Back off. (laughs) That's what Jesus is is getting them to understand here. Jesus' declaration helps us see something about Jesus that we need to talk about. And this this is point number two, last one. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. See, God gave the Sabbath and the rest of the laws that went with it to man, that they might pursue God and that they might know him. The true, but, but, but that true meaning, the, the true purpose had gotten lost over the years. And that's why in Mark's retelling of these same interactions we're studying in Matthew 12, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says this, he records Jesus' words this way, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's an important distinction. What does it say? It says that this law, this, this Sabbath law that God gave, it was given It was a gift to man. And not just to man, but it was given for man. The Sabbath was a way in which human beings were going to be able to to help them focus on God, that they may know and trust and be with God. The Sabbath and the other Old Testament laws were supposed to help people grow to understand and love their creator, but instead they simply became the culture. They became checkboxes. They became something that we do. They became something to obsess over. Though the law was given to man, it was given for man. However, the innate sinfulness of man shaded over that purpose and it was lost for generations and generations. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And through his teaching and through the way he practices the law, those around him begin to see what God was originally intending. They see Jesus do something. They go, um, do y'all remember that? Kids still do that, I think. Do kids still do that? Lindsay, um, when somebody does something bad, that's what people did to Jesus all the time. Now y'all know what I'm talking about. They do it all the time. People do that to Jesus because he would do something. They would go, whoa, 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 you're not supposed to do that. And Jesus would use the scriptures to go, yeah, it's all right. And then they would go, oh, so that's what it's supposed to look like. And Jesus does that with everything. And he does that in, with the Sabbath itself. He, he's showing them what God's original meaning of the law was. But see, more than Jesus came to show the original intent, he also came to claim that he is the embodiment of what they were all pointing towards anyway. Matthew five seventeen. earlier in the book of Matthew, um, Jesus, uh, it's in part of a, a section of scripture we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a reference to the whole Old Testament, the the Hebrew prophet or the Hebrew Bible. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. You see, Jesus says that everything the Old Testament focuses on is about me. 
So it means when we see in Genesis 3, we see this coming snake crusher that God promises to Eve. Jesus says, that's me. Jesus says, I'm the true blessing to the nations that God promised Abram in Genesis 12. I'm better than Joseph at providing for my people at the end of Genesis. I'm the true rescuer who leads his people out of slavery like Moses. I'm the real high priest who stands between humans and the father like Aaron tried to. I'm the one who has conquered the enemy for you like Joshua. I'm the eternal king that was promised through the line of David, leading and protecting, slaying real giants, not just some tall dude, but sin and death for you. I'm the very real presence of God among his people, better than the tabernacle that Moses helped build after Sinai, better than the temple built by Solomon and the one built by Ezra and Nehemiah in their day. I'm the one deserving of your praise and adoration through the Psalms. I'm the true wisdom of God that Solomon desired, giving purpose to your futility. I'm the suffering servant that God told Isaiah would come. I'm the one giving new hearts to those who believe like Jeremiah heard about. I'm the one who brings dead things back to life like Ezekiel saw in the Valley of Dry Bones. I'm the sky-riding son of man that God gave Daniel visions about. Are you catching it? I'm the true husband who fights for his wayward bride like Hosea. It's my spirit that now resides in man, just as Joel talked about. I'm the life that is offered to those who seek in Moses and Amos. I'm the savior who has ascended Mount Zion to bring the kingdom of God in Obadiah. I'm the one calling you now to reach the nations, just as I did with Jonah. I'm the promised miracle and power of God that should leave you stunned and your hand over your mouth, like Micah said would happen. I'm the one bringing justice to those who have been put down. Like in Nahum, I'm the answer from God you've been waiting for that Habakkuk said. I'm the fortune that has been restored from Zephaniah. I'm the one true king that will come again and overthrow earthly thrones. Like in Haggai, I'm the living water that flows from Jerusalem. Like in Zechariah, I'm the one who has brought freedom and joy, just like was promised in Malachi, leaving you like calves being set free in an open field. See it, church. When Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, this is what he meant. That all of it is flowing to who he is and what he accomplished for us. And so, Jesus pointing towards every single thing in the Old Testament, pointing towards this coming Savior, and now he has brought to us new life through his spirit, new purpose in our call to make disciples of all nations, new connection with God through his blood on the cross and a new family right here at Lindsay Lane East and around the world. And so you may ask, how has he fulfilled the call to rest and be present with God though? Because I didn't hear anything about that. Well, I didn't make note of this. If you've heard me preach a lot, you probably wondered why. But Matthew 12 begins in a peculiar way. First three words, he says, at that time. Which if you know me when I preach, I can't just let that go. (laughs) Because it's pointing to something. Matthew was connecting the stories that are to come to something that just happened. And you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I'm about to. What is the teaching that Jesus just got out of his mouth right before he gets wore out by the religious leaders? Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what Jesus has just said before he addresses these goofballs about the Sabbath. Church, I don't know what else I can say, but I'll say it again in my own words. Just as Jesus told those listening to him 2,000 years ago, I now say to you, come to Jesus. All of you who are war slap out. Come to him. Take up his life. Because it's not hard. Because he helps. And you will find rest for your souls. Does God expect us, just to address a couple of frequently asked questions, does God expect us to set aside a 24-hour day period and do nothing? I don't think so. Because Jesus offers a rest that goes way past the confines of a 24-hour period. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, He changes our plans. He changes our outlook on life so that no matter what's going on, we find rest every day. We can find rest every day. Is coming to church on Sunday now what is meant by keeping the Sabbath? No, definitely not. We don't come to church because God told us to keep the Sabbath. We come to church because the early church gathered on the first day of the week to celebrate the risen Savior. We don't celebrate the Sabbath in this way because the rest that Christ offers opens the door for worship to not happen on a morning service and then the door to be shut. It's to overflow into every part of our lives all through the week. You see, I don't believe we are required to keep a Sabbath anymore because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. But as I told you last week, the wisdom behind the law still remains for us to learn from. I want to leave you with this quote. It's from the Bible Project and their uh, online ministry. Got some good stuff. Some stuff I don't like as much, but a lot of good stuff. This was a quote I read. Sabbath is not a commandment we are bound to. It's a promise we're invited to enjoy. You see this? Today, let me ask you, do you need to discover this rest? Do you need to discover the rest that can only be found in Jesus? I would love it to share with you. I would love to share with you how you can trust in Jesus today. Or maybe you're already following Jesus. Maybe you've already trusted in him, but you're finding yourself drifting back into a life with no rest. I want you to be reminded today that this is not God's will for your life. He wants you to live with peace and rest in Jesus. Step into that life today. Stop buying the lie of the world that busyness equals success. Our ultimate fulfillment in life is not to be found in a dollar, not to be found in a job, not to be even found in our family. It is to be found in Jesus Christ alone, not any work. As as Olin read earlier, right? Saved by grace through faith, not of our works so that anyone can boast. If you need to spend time in prayer, you can pray right where you are. You can come up to this altar and you can pray prayers here. I'll be at the back as well, if you need to come talk to me about something that's going on in your life, you just need me to pray for you. I'm going to be back there. But we're going to sing. Our worship team is going to come on back up. Uh, we're going to sing one more song, a beautiful song. And I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we're going to sing that song. And then I, I'm just asking you just to respond to God however he leads, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you. Um, 
God, that, uh, that in Christ, God, we have this beautiful picture of, of God, the original intent of all these laws, God. Man, we, we messed it up so bad over time. And God, we still mess it up. We still want to make it a list. God, we still want to make it a check, check boxes. But God, what we see is that, that in Christ, there's something so much greater than a checkbox that's offered. It's relationship with you through the work of Jesus Christ. God, today, God, may you fall on this place, God, and may you stir in the hearts of those of us who have trusted in him. And Jesus, God, we would, we would not live our lives for the world, not live our lives for our work, but God, we would find our true peace and rest in Jesus today. And God, I also pray if there's somebody here, God, who maybe is trying to find rest and trying to find peace, but God, they don't have a relationship with you through Jesus, that today they would find that before they leave. God, we love you and we thank you for your word that always speaks to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand and sing.